We have started looking at Jesus Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember, he and he alone is the head of the church, whether 2,000 years ago or today. And what Jesus does here through John is write to each church reports of their spiritual condition. And what we need to do as we work our way through this letter is ask ourselves, what would the head of the church say about Heath Church in 2021? It's not so much what I, as your pastor, think, or what you, as the good people, think. It's what Jesus has to say about our spiritual state. And I trust we will all have sensitive ears. Each letter ends with the exhortation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, through Christ, has to say to the churches. So we're going to start looking tonight at the church at Ephesus. So turn with me, please, to Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, Verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> to the angel of the church at Ephesus writes, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know you are works, you are labor, you are patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly." And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The first of these seven letters is addressed to the largest uh, city in Asia Minor, the city of Ephesus, a quarter of a million in population. That was huge uh, in New Testament times. It was situated on the banks of the river Meandros, very interesting for a geographer because that river has given the name to a meander, and it was a major uh, trading center. Uh, it was situated uh, in a strategic location uh, in terms of transport to the rest of the Roman Empire. It was also a major political center. It was given free status uh, by Rome, and it was renowned for its entertainment. There was a large theater there, and there was also a major stadium. And if you know uh, your Book of Acts, 
you will know that the most famous structure of all was the temple to Diana. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was four times the size of the Acropolis in Athens. It was also renowned for its immorality because of the cult of Diana. It was like a religious immoral cult. And one philosopher who was called the weeping philosopher, so not just Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, there was a weeping philosopher who lived in Ephesus and he wasn't a Christian and he said no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. Does that sound familiar? A large city on the banks of a river, a transport hub to the rest of the country or principality, a major political centre given some autonomy, a famous theatre, or should I say opera house, and an even more famous stadium. Sounds familiar? Cardiff. And if the philosopher could weep at the immorality of Ephesus, how much more can we weep at the states of our beautiful city of Cardiff? In this city, Jesus Christ had set up a church, and it's the most famous church in the New Testament. Do you know anything about the church at Ephesus? It was founded by none other than the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He soon left it in the capable hands of a godly couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and a very powerful preacher called Apollos, and the church grew. And then on his third missionary journey, Paul pastored the church for three years, and they saw a revival. Uh, it was a mighty work of the Spirit of God. And as a result, the community was changed. The worship of Diana was affected. And after Paul left the church, uh, he uh, addressed the elders uh, of the church at Ephesus before going to Rome to be imprisoned. In Acts 20, he gave a very moving address to them. Uh, we'll refer to that shortly. And then uh, the church thrived because he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, written to the same church. It's one of the grandest epistles in the New Testament. It describes a spiritual church that had power and love and reality. And Timothy became its minister. Think of the lineage here. Paul, Timothy, and after Timothy, the Apostle John became pastor of the church. And that's when John found himself here in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And John wrote, while he was pastor of the church at Ephesus, his gospel and his three letters. What a church to have such a, a heritage. And also the church had sent out evangelists to the surrounding region and had sent out missionaries to the then civilized world. Sounds familiar? A large city with a very well-known church. 
that has a goodly line of pastors, that is renowned for its teaching, that has sent out ministers to the rest of the country and missionaries to the rest of the world. Sounds familiar? Sounds a bit like Heath Evangelical Church to me. And then Jesus Christ writes this letter, firstly addressed to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, you know what the angel is here. I've mentioned it often enough. It's the messenger. So that's John, the pastor. Also, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are also the pastors. Hang on, John is thinking. He's talking about my church. I'm sure John's heart would have skipped a beat as he heard what Jesus had to say about his own church. You know what the most important thing about the church is? Not the size. Ephesus was a large church in a large place. Not the heritage, the lineage of ministers. It's a great privilege to belong to a church that has that. It's not the teaching even, even though that's important. It's not the fact that the church has sent out pastors and missionaries, even though that's really encouraging. The most important thing about any church is he who's walking in our midst. Jesus Christ, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we forget that at our peril. This is what Warren Wearsby says. I've recommended Warren Wearsby's little commentaries. The Ephesian church had enjoyed some stellar leadership, Paul, Timothy, and John himself. But the Lord reminded them that he was in control of the ministry, placing the stars, the ministers, where he pleased. How easy it is for a church to become proud and forget that pastors and teachers are God's gifts. He who walks in the midst of the churches, he's the one we are answerable to, all of us. Now then, let's look tonight at a word of praise that Jesus has. Let, let me use the same letter, right, so we can have the two points starting with the same letter. A word of commendation, a word of praise, and then a word of condemnation. I'm sure we can all follow that. So Christ, first of all, finds something to praise in this well-known church. I'm sure John was expecting it because it was such a famous church with such a stellar line of pastors. But you know what, my friends? Any gospel church, any faithful congregation will have something praiseworthy. I, I find it very encouraging that the first thing Jesus Christ has to say about this church is a word of praise. He's not slow to praise his people. And there's no such thing as a perfect church. 
But even the most imperfect of churches, if they are faithful, we will find something to give thanks to God for. I think that's an important way of dealing with our brothers and sisters across our city. So what does Jesus commend in the church at Ephesus? He is the head speaking now. John is listening. What does he find praiseworthy about our church? The first thing is this, sound teaching. And if you look at verse 2, I know your works, and then skip a few words, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. Good. They guarded the purity of their teaching. That's something vital in a church. Paul said to Timothy, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Once the church starts compromising the truth, the word truth unchanged, unchanging once we start fiddling with the truth we begin to lose our way and jesus says of the church at ephesus well done you have been sound and remain sound in the truth i think the elders at ephesus had really listened to what the Apostle Paul had to say to them in his farewell speech. If you can turn to Acts chapter 20. I want to refer to some verses in that speech. Acts chapter 20. This is what Paul warned them about. This was his exhortation to the elders. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise, speaking perverse, twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And they listened to him. They had made sure that no uh, wolves in sheep clothing would enter their pulpits. They had guarded the deposits. That's another word for the truth. Something that's been handed down. It was handed down from the Lord to Paul. It was handed from Paul to Timothy. And from Timothy to John. Keep, says Paul to Second Timothy. The last words he wrote to Timothy. Keep that deposit which has been given to you by the Holy Spirit. I think I can say with thankfulness that this is a church which seeks to guard the truth of God and we can be grateful to the Lord for keeping us 
all these years. We shouldn't take that for granted. We sometimes pray, don't we? God, our pulpit, Lord. It's very sad today to see well-meaning Christians go off on all sorts of tangents. May we not despise being a sound church. And Jesus goes on to praise uh, the Ephesian church uh, for dealing with a certain group of false teachers. Look what he says. I know you are works and you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. Then verse 6 but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who were these Nicolaitans? Uh, interestingly, the word Nicolaitan means to conquer the people. Now, the meaning of Jeremiah was to throw. But in Jeremiah's uh, sense, it was God who was doing the conquering. God bringing down and then building up. But these Nicolaitans were self-appointed leaders. They weren't called of God. And they used the same terminology that uh, Paul and Timothy and John would have used. But they twisted the words as Paul was warning the elders at Ephesus. And they lorded it over the people. And they did it with antinomian teaching. What is antinomian? Antinomian is anti-law. So they were forcing the people to live like the world. Now, we don't know what that meant in practice uh, in the Ephesian situation, but this is how one commentator puts it. Think of the temple of Diana, right? And the sexual immorality that went along with the cults of Diana. So through the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the right terms, but there was enough poison there to draw the people away from the straight and narrow. This is how uh, Barclay puts it. The Nicolaitans were not prepared to be different. If their teaching had been successful, the world would have changed Christianity and not Christianity the world. I think that's significant. The world changing the church. That shouldn't be. It should be the church influencing the world. So here's a church that's been faithful in the midst of immorality and not only been sound, but even disciplined those who have brought in error. Now, I think we are good at being sound. Uh, sad to say, Evangelicalism in Wales is not that good at church discipline. It's something we're afraid of. So, in a way, the church in Ephesus is better than we are. And then Jesus commends something else about them. Not only are they sound. You see, it's possible for a church to be sound, but sound asleep. Sound asleep. But they weren't sound asleep. They, they were an active church. This isn't just knowledge that was dry 
and didn't affect their lives. Uh, Again, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience. Uh, The word for labor is toil. And in the Greek, it means to work to the point of exhaustion. Now, my friends, are we working for Christ to the point of exhaustion? I'm not. So here is a church to be commended. And they suffered for Christ's name. There is mention of patience. Patience, that means to endure. They'd kept on keeping on. For how long? How long was the period between this letter, the second letter to the Ephesians, and the first letter to the Ephesians? Forty years. Think for a minute of how these dear saints had endured for such a long period. Have you managed to do that? It's an impressive church, isn't it? Sound. Active. It's something we desperately need in our day. It actually sounds near perfect. Do you think John felt proud of his church as he hears these words of commendation? I'm sure he did. But Christ also condemns this church There's a word, isn't there? Verse 4, nevertheless. (laughs) I'm sure John's heart sank when he heard that. There is such a thing as a sinking feeling, you know. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. You can be sound. You can be indefatigable, zealous to the point of exhaustion and persevering in it. And you can have something vital missing. You see, we sometimes say to people, if they're going somewhere as students or if they're moving to another part of the country, if they ask, uh, how, how would you recommend a church? We would rightly say, uh, look for a church where there is sound, faithful preaching or look for a church where the worship is God-honoring. But this is what is frightening regarding Christ's diagnosis of the church at Ephesus. All those things were there, but there was one missing ingredient, and that one ingredient was so important that Jesus says, I've got this against you. That's scary, isn't it? They had lost their first love and it wasn't sinning against each other that they were guilty of but sinning against Christ to lose our first love is to go against Christ now this love uh, what is it it's love to Christ yes but it's also love to everything that belongs to Christ so it's love to our saviour but the love that we have to one another as his people And this had somehow grown cold in this near-perfect church. I find that frightening. Don't you? Doctrine is vital. Doctrine without devotion is no good. 
Work is important for the Lord. But labor without love is useless. Here's one commentator. It's a a bit long, the quote. (laughs) So can you bear with me? There is a searching lesson here. A church may be well established, like the church at Ephesus. Even large and prosperous, it may be exhibiting all the grand features to which Christ has already drawn attention in Ephesus. Yet, all the time, a secret defect may silently but surely be eating away at the church and threatening its very existence. For the Lord Jesus Christ will not accept any one thing or any collection of things as a substitute for love to himself. Plenty of things were going on. The work was getting done. And no doubt the notices for the week revealed a packed program But first love to Christ was no longer the throbbing lifeblood of the church. That's the danger. We can have everything. We can be sound. We can be active. We can be faithful. And yet there is this horrible spiritual cancer eating away in our hearts. And we just don't see it. John didn't see it. Think of how spiritual John is the writer of the gospel, he didn't see it. The people didn't see it. But Christ did. I wonder what Christ's x-ray eyes would see about our church. Now, what is this first love? I read from Jeremiah 2, which was quite interesting since we were in Jeremiah 1 this morning, because there you have the best description of first love. It's the love of one's betrothal. What is that in modern English? Honeymoon love. I can't speak from personal experience here, but all of you who've had a honeymoon will realize that is something quite different to just plodding on. Um, I've got some descriptions here. Warm, spontaneous, fresh, glowing. Here's Warren Wearsby again. While it is true that mature married love deepens and grows richer, I think of the River Taff. It starts off in the Brecon Beacons and it's a little mountain stream. It seems to be going very fast. Like that is the love of a young Christian. It's all on the surface, but it's immature. And then when you come down to Pontypri, the Taff is much bigger, much more mature. It seems as if it's going slower. It's actually going faster in Pontypri than it is up in the Beacons. But it's deeper, and it's like that for the Christian. Yes, when we're first saved, everything is fresh, and everything's on the surface, but there's an immaturity to it. And as we grow in grace, we become deeper. But what should never, ever go is that love. A deep love to Jesus Christ can be just as fresh and spontaneous and warm and glowing as the love when we were first saved and we were newborn babes. Wearsby goes on to say, it is also true that it should never lose the excitement and wonder 
of the honeymoon days, when a husband and wife begin to take each other for granted and life becomes routine, then the marriage is in danger. That's what was becoming the case in Ephesus. Their relationship with Jesus Christ was no longer a relationship of love. The church that had 40 years earlier been told about the celestial ladder, been told about the communing with Christ, had forgotten. And it was routine. Routine. Is our Christianity routine? We've got it all sorted in the head. We work hard, and those are things we must count as precious. But have we got into a routine? As I come to a conclusion, a routine. I just want to ask some questions as I finish. How can the worship of Almighty God be routine? Oh, how sad that as evangelicals, worship has been a subject of controversy rather than something that we are doing. How can it be routine to praise the sovereign ruler of the universe? How can it be routine, even if we can't sing out loud, to sing a new song in our hearts to our Redeemer God? How can spending time with God in his word be routine? How can we ever think of this precious book just as a textbook? Is not this a love letter? Is not this a book that speaks to us? How can prayer be routine? How can communing with Christ be routine? How can talking, imagine the privilege of talking, not just to the prime minister or to the president, but to the king of kings and to have him as our father and to have Jesus as our friend. How can that be routine? How can preaching be routine? How can witnessing be routine? How can we be so mechanical about evangelism? How can preachers speak about the glories of Christ as if they were speaking about any other subject? How can we look at people and not be moved because of their soul's routine? How can working for Christ be routine if we're working for such a being? There's a hymn, I'll just quote some verses from it, and then I've got two verses of scripture, and then I'll be done. Otherwise, I'll, I'll be uh, uh, going um, over the time with the COVID regulations. Uh, the hymn says, ashamed of Jesus. You can add the word, because the word ashamed means thrilled, right? So you can think of first love, ashamed of Jesus? Can it be routine? Of my God, who purchased me with his own blood, of him who re to retrieve my loss, despised the shame, endured the cross, ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend. Oh, no, no, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name ashamed of jesus yes i may when i've no guilt to wash away no tear to wipe no good to crave no fears to quell or soul to save how dare we or the ephesians be routine 
in our love to such a one who has redeemed us guilty sinners. Two verses. You see, first love, it's not about doing loads of things for the Lord. Paul said, even if I give my body a sacrifice and have not love, it's nothing. Jesus said, it's not how you do, but why you do it that matters. So Jesus said, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You can do a small deed like that in love to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said, or Paul said, Jesus through Paul, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. May our Christianity not be routine. May we know a rekindling of that love, that honeymoon love to our precious Saviour, Jesus Christ. Next Sunday evening, God willing, we will look at Jesus' prescription for this spiritual malaise. But we'll sing now, and it's a hymn which, with the chorus, I think, puts its finger on what it means to love Jesus Christ. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in mine ear, the sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Please stand and make a melody in your heart. Are the words of the chorus going to come up on the screen? Or do we need to know them? If they don't come up, oh, how I love the Savior's name. Oh, how I love the Savior's name. Oh, how I love the Savior's name the sweetest name on earth. Ah, there it is. Uh, it's wonderful what these uh, screens can uh, do. So let's stand and praise him from our hearts.
My beloved is mine and I am his until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Beether. Dear Jesus, come, our souls do groan for naught but for thyself alone. And now may that grace of the Saviour and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen. <laughs>